1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the Company of Gentlemen Golfers Who Played of Leith, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers Who Play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. It is an extra special day. This might be the most special day. This is episode number 22 of the Silver Club podcast, and we've got our co-host Colin Sheehan live in-house here in Winston-Salem. He's got the Yale golf team at the Old Town Intercollegiate this week. Colin, welcome to Winston-Salem. Steve, so happy to be here. This is a, an excellent opportunity. It's a tradition at Yale. They, we say if you do something twice, it's it's suddenly a tradition. So a year ago, we had I brought the team here for dinner with your family. This is just a, a lovely opportunity. And so we're back. Uh, Christy just made these incredible ribs. Beautiful dinner. Um, we're here in the in this memorabilia room here at Steve's house. This is, this is surrounded by this uh, books and artifacts. Just a, a a beautiful beautiful collection of items from uh, your golf career. This is I I love taking my team here, having them pick your brain about things. Uh, as these guys spend so much time focusing on Wagger. Uh, there's always a silence in the car when I mention that we're on our way to have dinner with someone who was former number one player in the world. That gets some serious. Uh, <laughs> that is they're impressed by oh, that. You're blowing me up here, but uh, you know, you're right. Whenever I step into this room, and this is kind of we're sitting here, it's uh, you know, kind of a, a living room area, and and this is kind of like a this is your life sort of room, right? I mean, I've got. Got pictures from. We've got Tiger Woods pictures here. We've got pictures with Jack Nicholas from the Masters. I've got course records. I've got Western Amateur victory. I've got my my number one ranked amateur trophy from uh, from Golf Week back in 1999. Very. It's it's kind of it's kind of cool to be here, and you know more importantly, really, the Yale team with you. You're in town this week for. The Old Town Intercollegiate, Old Town, 1939, Perry Maxwell. First of all, you've been here before. What do you think about Old Town? Well, first off, we're honored to be in this tournament. Wake Forest is currently the number one ranked team in the country. Um, Both men and women, really. Both men and women. Uh, Historic program as well. And to be be in their invitational uh, is a thrill for us. And then to have the the event, be it maybe the most architecturally significant course on the college calendar in the entire fall season with the, you know, tied with Yale and Maidstone, the other two tournaments we're going to play. <laughs> tied <up>. with Yale, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is, this is a thrill for us. It's, a, it's, we, we, we played well in it last year. The kids played well. Um, you know, we feel so incredibly welcome. I was just saying to our players, uh, everyone, we, we stopped at the club on the way from the airport to here and, and had a little sort of short game session and everyone couldn't be nicer and friendlier. And we feel like we're at a home event. Uh, Dunlop, our friend Dunlop White came out to say hello to us and the president of the club came out and we met we met a few other members and kids working there. Uh, we're chipping and putting and, and just a, it's just a, 
I, I don't think there's a better tournament that we ever travel to than it's, this one. So as a coach, how do you figure out what is the requirement of, okay, I'm going to pick such and such tournaments to play. And you mentioned you play, you're playing at Maidstone coming up. You played recently at Bethpage uh, Red Golf Course, Tillinghast. Uh, I, I'm guessing with your historical golf background, it has to be a, an architecturally significant golf course, right? It's hard for me to take the team to a course I don't like. I, but no, um, we're lucky. We only play about four or five events in the fall, and and a couple of them have to. And most of them have to be sort of within an easy drive, and uh, so we're very blessed to always have host a spring and fall tournament at Yale, and then from there it's pretty easy. This year we, I do want to mention. Um, it was important that we were able, because the calendar changed, we were able to finally go to Colgate's tournament and play in the uh, the Alex Lagowitz Memorial. I, I recruited, I knew Alex in the recruiting process and his father, Ian, is a dear friend of mine. And uh, that was a thrill to be able to take the boys up to that tournament that weekend. And Keith puts on a, a lovely tournament. And um, and then we always love going to, we always love going to Bethpage Red. We've got to shout out our uh, our host, uh, Mal Galetta at St. John's. They, they put on, they, they, that tournament proves to me that proves to anyone that you don't, you can have a great tournament without any sort of banquet and bells and whistles and tea gift. And it's the most low key tournament we go to. And in the course, you know, it's a reminder that the event is always all about the course. Yeah. It's about the golf course. Isn't yeah. It, and the sure. kids love that course. And then we love staying with uh, our, our friend, Dan Englander, uh, when we're out there in Oyster Bay. But, uh, this one is, this one is, there's no question. This will be the sort of the type of, uh, str- uh, there's going to be a, the strength of the field is something that we we have to travel this sort of experience. And a year ago, uh, coming off of a dinner here at your house, I think James opened with a 64 and Teddy with a 66. Mm-hmm. And and that was like the moment when I really knew that that was a special team last year. I was like, this is, we can we can travel and put up some red numbers. That, now, was, that was a fun, it was a really fun tournament for us. Now you mentioned Teddy and then Teddy Zinsner from... Washington, D.C. Uh, Teddy had a great year last year, ranked number 22 in the NCAA stroke average. 70.55 was Teddy's stroke average last year. He's the captain of your team this year and the junior. Now, now, Teddy, you finished fifth here last year at the Old Town Intercollegiate. Yeah. What sort of things do you remember from the golf course and, and what make you enthused to get out there again and play? No, nah, it's definitely, I loved the course last year. It's definitely got a lot of width off the tee, but uh, it still makes you hit a lot of shots. You know, there, there are a lot of holes where you can be in the middle of the fairway, but the ball be way below your feet or way above your feet. And you might not be able to hit like your go-to shot into the green. You kind of have to manufacture something. Um, so there's definitely still some challenge, but it was uh It was a course that I know the whole team liked, and especially I really enjoyed playing last year. Right now, it's it's yeah, it's certainly a score a course where uh, it's got a lot of width. The the bombers definitely they always have an advantage, but certainly an advantage at Old Town. The greens are soft, Bermuda Mm -hmm. grass everywhere, bent grass greens. Uh, What what is the strength of your game in particular, and how do you think your game stacks up to? Do you think you can maybe improve on that fifth place finish from last year? Yeah, I do. I think maybe I probably just if I putted a little better, but uh, I just the strength of my game is I hit a lot of fairways, hit it like pretty far, not like anything crazy. And I've always been a really good iron player. It's just uh, 
definitely need to get a little better around the greens and that's something I could improve on from last year because uh, the fairways are wide and I don't think I might have missed any fairways last year I don't know <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's hard it's hard to miss them out there for sure but uh what has it been like for two full seasons now going into your third playing for coach Colin Sheehan and your experience at Yale so far talk to us about how that's been yeah no it's been awesome I couldn't have asked for a better first two years um it's definitely it's definitely during the season uh it's a grind you know our seasons are usually like we go whatever five weeks in the fall five weeks in the spring and it's every single weekend like practice during the week and you still got a lot of work to do um it's kind of nice in the fall uh most of our heavy workloads come toward like after the season whereas in the spring it's all like right at the end of the season right when we're playing ivies or uh uh it's before ncas but um yeah it all just kind of falls towards the end of the season in the spring um but yeah, no, it's been great. Uh, the team's awesome. Everyone gets along really well. It, yeah, so it's a good it's a good point. You know, I think about being a student athlete at Yale University and and the the demands on your academics. Um, yeah, how how do you find the time? Really, how how do you find the time to balance both golf and school? How do you do it? Yeah, it's definitely hard. But I mean, you just you still, you still have a lot of time during the day. Like you just have to be very proactive about, um, how you're managing your time. Um, so you definitely, you find yourself not having that much free time, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) it's, it's definitely doable, but it it is hard. Yeah. Did you have to qualify for this event at back at home or were you exempt from a previous tournament or talk to us how, how coach Colin does his qualifying (laughs) spill the beans. Come on. (laughs) Teddy uh, was a stroke out of winning uh, at Bethpage last week, so that type of oh that type of uh, that that type of result sort of uh, green lights you into the next tournament. But um, like like track and field, like swimming, golf has an aspect of it that's uh, it's empirical, it's numbers, and uh, it's it, you have to be fair. I think the hardest thing that every coach deals with is. You have to keep everyone engaged and you, you can't have someone um, <clears throat> be too far behind in the sort of overall strokes for the year or stroke average that they're way down. I feel like, you know, five rounds, 90 holes is a nice, is a fair enough sample size that if you can sort of, if you can have that, it, it's, it's, it allows someone, you want everybody on your team feeling like they're just two weeks away from turning it all around. And I think that you don't, <clears throat> you never want someone feeling like they're demoralized or that no matter how well they play, they're just not going to be able to crack the lineup. Uh, it's, uh, but there is, of course, there's no motivator like the bench and it's tough. <laughs> and if you're, you're not a serious team until you start leaving extremely good players back home during a, during a travel tournament. And that's, <laughs> that type of depth is something that I've been very blessed to have. And, and, you know, we're lucky that we host spring and fall tournaments. Everyone's going to in the lineups. Everyone on the roster is going to play. Everyone's going to play in a tournament on spring break. But um, it's never easy. I, there's no perfect solution. Uh, every single coach has a slightly different version. But um, most kids understand that it's, uh, you know, if you make your case, you make your you make an emphatic case, then you you, uh, you earn your way up. 
There's no motivator like the bench. That might, that might be the best quote I've ever heard. I love it. Now I'm uh, quoting. I'm quoting John Stuper, the baseball coach at Yale. By the way. <laughs> now, now, yeah, I think about depth on teams, and you think of uh, in in Division One, Oklahoma State University. They always said that you know they're they're behind the team that they had in the last few years of Matthew Wolf, Austin Eckroat, you name it. Uh, they had a second team that would that could beat pretty much everybody's first team as well. And you talk about that depth. And and before we get to our guest this week, Boyd Summerhays, who actually went to Oklahoma State for a very short stint before moving back to to Utah. Um, you know, put your coach's hat on for a moment. And would you say that you are more of a Mental coach or a technical swing type of coach? No, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a player's coach. I'm a P. Carroll style. Coach. You're a player's. No. Okay, give me an example uh, no, no, of, no. of a player's. Coach. I don't want to. They're gonna, they're, they're gonna laugh. I'll let. Uh, I would say. Um, okay, give it to Teddy. What kind of coach? Uh, no, what no. kind of coach? I'm how, how is Colin? What a, would you say? He's a, he's a player's coach. <laughs> He's a players coach. How is Colin a players coach? We have to know this. This is very important information on the Silver Club podcast to know. No, I, I listen. I don't want to. I they deserve all the credit. They're the ones hitting the shots, and uh, I, I all I ever try to do is put them just in the best position to succeed, which is which is probably nothing more than uh, just spelling out the sort of season and and. And if, if I do anything well, which is very, there's, you could, there's not many things you could list, but um, I have a sympathy for, their, for, for what they're going through as undergraduates. I understand that uh, golf is going to Yale will drive you crazy without being an athlete. And you were a Yale graduate as well, right? right. And so, so you, you add, know exactly what these guys are going through. You add 20 hours <laughs> of a physical, uh, you know, golf is physically demanding. It's mentally exhausting. They're trying to balance four and five classes. Uh, they're trying to have a quality undergraduate experience, and so um, if anything, you have to you have to sort of give them permission to to be flexible with their schedules, with their practice schedules. Um, you have to you have to let them be able to miss a practice on any on a with an hour's notice because they're sort of the vortex of a, of classes is, is piling on and. And in the end, you want them. The thing is, they're all. I don't have to motivate them. They all. They all want to start. They all want to play, and they're all very talented. They. They all. They all push each other. My favorite is just they go out and play. They go out and practice together. They play together. They have fun, and in and in and in 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 that process, they're they're making each other better, and they're making the team better. Well, it's it's really special to have both Teddy and you, Colin, here in house here in Winston Salem, the the home of our editing bay of our Silver Club podcast. We wish you a ton of luck this week at Old Town and uh, taking the title this year. And we're going to get to uh, Boyd Summerhays right now. What a great coach he is! Coaches Tony Finau, Ryder Cup star among others, uh, including his son Preston, his daughter Grace. Uh, some great players. Preston won the U.S. Junior this last year at the Inverness Club. So stay tuned real quick for Boyd Summerhays on the Silver Club Podcast. All right, but before we get to this great podcast, I wanted to say we couldn't have this podcast without the help of the Silver Club Golfing Society. Our golfing society is growing each and every day, and as the proud founder of the Silver Club Golfing Society, I'm talking with great people. We're growing our membership all the time. We're having some great events too. That's the nucleus of our society. We're playing at Quaker Ridge this week. 
We'll have Old Town Club October the 10th. We'll have our fourth major of the year, November 11th and 12th, at the Ford Plantation right near Savannah. And right after that, I'll fly out to San Francisco for our event at Pasta Tiempo, our one-day event out there. So great events on the schedule. Our top 32 point earners will earn their way until the Silver Club Championship at the beginning of December at Champions Retreat. So really looking forward to that. Also have to thank our sponsors of the Silver Club Golfing Society, the Dunhill brand, Club Champion, Blast Motion, Global Golf Post, Torch Eyewear, Links and Kings, and Turtleson. And remember, with our great partner in Dunhill, anybody who plays in a Silver Club event this year will get their name put into a lottery to win a trip of a lifetime over to the Dunhill Links in 2020. So you have to check that out. If you want to play some of the greatest golf courses in the world and hit shots that matter, then the Silver Club Golfing Society is what you need to look into. We're on the web at silverclubgs.com, and we're all over social media at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter, and we're on Facebook too, so take a look there. All right, let's get to this week's guest, Boyd Summerhays. He's got a great story. His son Preston comes in and joins the crowd as well. So enjoy this great Silver Club podcast. All right. It is an awesome day here at the Silver Club podcast. We have one of the best golf instructors in the game right now, Boyd Summerhays. He's the director of instruction at McDowell Mountain in Scottsdale, Arizona. And he coaches most famously the 12th ranked player in the world, Tony Finau. And he's just an all around great guy. Welcome to the podcast. Steve, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be with you, man. We've uh, known each other for a long time, so I'm excited. Yeah, we sure have. Uh, I think, you know, looking back at it, 1994 really was when we met uh, PGA National, PGA Junior. You you came on my radar screen. We were paired together for at least one of the rounds. You made five birdies in a row coming out of the gate. I'll never forget that. I was like, wow, this guy's going to be good. And you look like you were about, you know, 10 at the time, and now you're you know, you're, you're about 40 years old and you, you still look like you're about 20. So that's a good thing. You're aging very well, but <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. No, those are great memories, man. Uh, you had a hell of a career yourself and, uh, it's, it's been really fun to see over the last couple of years in your new role with, you know, commentating and doing other things. So in TV, so it's been fun to reconnect. Yeah, absolutely. I can't, you know, I, I'm super excited to get you on this podcast and, you know, our, our Silver Club Golfing Society is full of great players who, you know, they're they're all they're all more so scratch players or people who are contending for their club championships or yeah. uh, trying to qualify for USGA National Championships. We had a couple guys in the U.S. Mid Amateur Colorado Golf Club, which is pretty cool to watch. But you know, from from a from a playing standpoint like that, you know, what's what sort of things like we'll just come right out of the gate with a with a golf instruction tip from you. Uh, and what sort of things does the scratch player not do that the tour players that you teach do? Well, I think first off, I think when you're trying to help someone, say, say someone wants to, they look at the tour player and say, what do they have? And there's definitely a power requirement. You know, you see that, that the average club head speed each year is going up a little bit, right? Usually a, a tour player has, a little higher ball flight, but I, I don't necessarily think that there's a huge difference a lot of times between your, you know, scratch and plus two, plus three, plus four players in hitting the ball. I think there are some special ball strikers on tour. There's 10 to 30 guys that really stripe it, but then the other guys, 
they are true scorers. They can get up and down out of his trash can. Their wedges are elite, chipping and putting. Even when a tour player is ranked average on tour in putting, he actually is a great putter. And so I think that's what sometimes people lose sight of is that they are elite around the greens. You look at a tour player, the average tour player three putts every other round. Some of the better putters three putt every third round. These are fast and slopey greens. They make half their eight footers. Some guys on tour making 40% of 10 footers. So I think that's something that kind of gets missed uh, or overlooked is how good some of the tour player short games are. For sure. The, and, and along those same lines, I mean, you were, uh, you're gracious enough to spend some time. We're, we're doing this uh, later at night. You've spent the whole day on the practice tee. How much time do you actually spend on range lessons versus on-course lessons with your, just say, your, your, your general player? Well, that's, that's a great question. Um, the longer I've been doing this, the more time I spend on the course. So my first year or two of teaching, I started realizing, holy cow, like th- my, my junior player or mini tour player, or web.com or Corn Ferry Now tour player, I've hardly even seen them play. Like, how do I really know what's happening? So now I go the opposite way. If I, if someone is going to come to me and invest their time and, and, and resources into trying to get better, I see them on a course within the first two or three lessons for sure, because it gives me a better picture of really what I'm dealing with. Because you can take somebody that hits it good on the range, and then they they align a lot different on the course, or you you see the full picture when it's in that environment instead of on the range. Because I, I think a lot of us, I was the same way as a player. I can hit it pretty good on the range, and I still can. But taking it to the course, it's it's harder for me personally. Like I, I start to feel uncomfortable with certain looks, you know, certain pin placements and wind directions. If you're going to try to really help a player, you have to see him play. So I actually do a lot of on-course work with players, even if it's just an hour or two lesson, you know, slip out for two or three holes. Now that that that's that's great stuff. Great lessons to learn there. Yeah, get on the golf course. Don't just you know, you hit on a flat practice tee and. You don't you don't vary the the conditions and the environment that you play in, so that's uh, that's really good stuff. Now, now you talked about yourself as a player, and, and you know I think about all the great teachers out there, and you know just get a, a little bit of your background. You were a great junior player, worked your way in. You played for Oklahoma State for a little stint. You you turned professional, and you you had some pretty good success, but maybe not the success that you wanted on the PGA Tour. But that, that playing background, I think, is super important in the makeup of what makes a great teacher. What do you think about the, the best teachers out there being some of the best players? Well, I think some of the best players may not make very good coaches, but a player that got to the tour or played at a high level and then coaches, I think, is a huge asset because you know when to say something and when not to say something. You understand how hard certain information will be for the player to take on. You pick and choose the time in their season when you throw more information and then when you give them less information. And that just comes from playing where you know what it was like. I mean, in my whole life, I took lessons or I was playing tournaments trying to make swing changes. So you kind of realize when you should say things and when not to. And so I think it's invaluable to me. I do believe that Two or three of the clients that I have on tour or have taught truly did come see me because I had a playing background. I wouldn't have taught Tony Finau if he didn't. He, we played a few pro events together, actually. And so he knew that I was having some success as a teacher, but I 
had played because he had had the experience of going to some some great teachers in my opinion but maybe just didn't have the playing background to really know how to help someone like him or identify what he needed to do so i think it has been a huge asset to me being a player you also uh, you got all your playing skills. You come from such a great golfing family. I mean, I, there, I'm trying to think if there's any golfing family out there that's as, as deep as yours. I mean, your your brother, Daniel, PGA Tour veteran for many years. Uh, your uncle, Bruce, played the Champions Tour three times a winner out there. Uh, great-grandfather was, uh, Prez, was the golf coach at Utah. You're passing this game on to your son Preston and Cameron, who's younger, and and Grace as well, and uh, you just the lineage of the Summerhays family is just uh, it just runs deep. What is what is the secret sauce really that that has made all of the your family so tied into this game? Well, I think it's it's cool how it happened. My my grandfather was an All American at the University of Utah for football, but he loved golf, so he later was. He was the head baseball coach at the University of Utah, but he was also the golf coach. And so he raised three sons that went on to play at the University of Utah. Bruce is the, you know, he played on the Champions Tour one, three times, like you mentioned. But my dad has been a golf nut his whole life. So my dad figured out real quick if he wanted to be able to to uh, play golf himself, he had to have his kids play too so he could justify being on the course. So I'm one of seven siblings. Our tournaments, our family tournaments were really competitive. One year we had... Bruce, myself, I was on the PGA Tour. Daniel had just won on the Corn Ferry as an amateur. Um, his, wow. his daughter was on the LPGA Tour. And then Bruce had another son that had played in some Corn Ferry Tour events, Joseph. So our family tournaments would get a little testy, a little competitive. But, you know, I, I think the cool thing for me as a coach now is that obviously I, I was a really good junior player and I did go to Oklahoma State and I should have done better on tour, but I didn't. I made a lot of mistakes made some errors and I think coaching has allowed me to try to rectify some of those things right and so I think that's why some you know past coaches or past players are good coaches is that obviously you're coaching for a reason you couldn't play at that high level long enough or as well as you wanted to so it's been really fun for me to take some of the lessons that I, I did well and pass them on to my kids but even more importantly you know rectify some of the mistakes I made and pass them on to my kids. And one of them was just one of the questions you asked. I got to the tour being a player. I played nonstop. I played money games. I played various courses throughout the week. I, I didn't really play on a home course. I just, wherever the money game was, right. I play. And then I do two or three hours of concentrated practice, but then I play 18 holes, maybe 36. And then I got on tour and, you know, had some injuries, but that led me to get, I went to swing instructor after swing instructor. I was bouncing all around, and all of a sudden, what got me to the tour was not being a perfectionist. It wasn't being a range rat, and I became that, and I started to lose my game. So with my kids, we balance range time and, and practice time with on-court time. So it, it's been really fun for me to pass it on to my kids and see their success and and uh, it carry on, I guess, the family name a little bit in the, in the game. Yeah, don't let them sit on the range too, too long. And, yeah, you, you talk about your your – Interfamily games, uh, yeah, you could darn near have a some world amateur golf ranking points in those uh, <laughs> just within your family. That's uh, that's that's really cool to have all that uh, you know that that internal stimulation, if you will, uh, yeah. just right at your fingertips there. But uh, it, you know, let's let's get in a little bit to of 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 who you coach and kind of what you 
what you talk about and, and go through. I mean, Tony Finau obviously is the, your uh, your prized pupil, your your yeah. most uh, well, maybe <laughs> maybe back up, maybe you probably after your children, uh, yeah. probably your you know your prized pupils. But uh, uh, Tony Finau really, you know, Ryder Cup star, number twelfth ranked player in the world. He just has so much talent. And and what sort of things have you, if if there are one or two things that you've really honed in on Tony's game that uh, that that he didn't have before that that have really helped propel him, what would they be? Well, I think me me and Tony have a cool relationship, and that I, I had worked with some PGA Tour players, but never full time. He hadn't played full-time on the PGA Tour, but he had played in some PGA Tour events as a, a young kid. He came to me when he was on the Corn Ferry Tour, and um, he had had he hadn't had a lesson in four years. He had he had had bounced around for a few years with instructors, and then he kind of just was kind of gave up hope a little bit in instruction. And then you know he for some reason he reached out, and he was very specific with what he wanted. That was the first thing that was impressed me is that a lot of us, we go to lessons and just like, hey, just go to work, right? And with him, he was very specific. He knew he was, um, he got in contention, and he was hitting some shots over bunkers and false fronts and and over hazards, and the ball was, he wasn't able to control his distance as well because of the amount of spin he had on it. So first order of business was to take some of the excessive curve and the excessive spin out of his ball. So you know, now he, he hits a fade that hardly moves and he can move it right to left with these irons. He still likes to just fade the driver, but it was getting getting his face, his club face a lot less open, you know, something a lot of amateurs and a lot of us struggle with, but he, he changed his right hand grip significantly, uh, um, which ended up changing his club face. So it took him a little bit of time because he was used to seeing his ball curve so much left to right. Even once he started hitting it better, he had to take a lot tighter line in time but he's a remarkable athlete and and he's able to put you know changes into play pretty quick if he believes in him or you can see the end end game with it but i would say definitely getting his curve out of the ball he he was always super long he was longer before he met me or when he was, <laughs> young, when he was younger i mean i saw i saw him play a corn fairy tour event we were both playing in it and he was 17, I believe, maybe 16. And at elevation, he was hitting 410 yard drives in Utah. Wow. And he he was famous for getting almost 200 ball speed at uh, the the U.S. Bank in Milwaukee, where he drove like the 17th hole over the water. And people yeah. talk about it, but I remember he, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he had power, but what the problem was is he didn't know where it was going to come down as much as he needed to, to where he couldn't use that as much mm -hmm. and so he hit a, a lot more three woods on the corn ferry a lot more driving irons and that is one thing that i'm you know proud of him is that he's become an amazing driver of the ball he hits as many drivers as he can now he doesn't shy away from his driver he goes to his driver as much as he can so that's a significant difference and so I, i'd say definitely his ball striking off the tee and and uh, ability to not just move the ball left to right, but move it right to left with these irons has helped him become an, an elite player because he's always had a great mind and a great toughness, a great attitude. Mm -hmm. he, he's a young, he, he's a really old 30 years old. He's experienced a lot. So just putting some skill sets into him and he already had that great mind and toughness and he's done amazing things. Yeah, it's, it just, it blows my mind every time I watch him swing and it has to, it has to you as well. The shortness of his backswing, that's what everybody sees. Yeah. That's what everybody it's and and to create that type of ball speed. Did you shorten his swing 
over time? Was it longer before? Yeah, it was longer, and it it was we kind of laughed. We just posted. We did a little video a couple of weeks ago where he got to two hundred, or last week he got to two hundred ball speed because we always <laughs> get asked. We do clinics, and we are on the road, and I get emails and you know comments on social media. Hey, would he hit it further if he took it back further? And I'm like. Yes, of course. So he's the only student I've ever taught that I've purposely shortened. I'm actually not a fan of a short swing intentionally. I think it's the worst thing you can do to somebody. But he is one rare case where he wasn't able to use his power because he wasn't hitting it straight enough. And one after his second year on tour, I kind of told him, if you hit five, only 5% 5 more of your fairways, you'd get in the top 10 in driving even if we lost five yards and yeah. and he just started to control it. And it just started to be where he didn't even realize that it was getting that short, but cause he was still at low eighties to mid 80 ball speed. And so if you look at course design on the tour, if they started to widen up the fairways for us at that 195 ball speed, 190 ball speed, ball speed, we would hit it further. We'd go after that distance, <laughs> but they haven't done that yet. And so there is no advantage, honestly, to getting to those ball speeds because it all narrows in at that those marks. So, yeah, he does swing it really short, and he's very efficient. But one thing that people maybe miss is he is a very up-tempo swinger of the golf club. So even though it's really short, he swings very fast from the beginning, so he actually still – is able to generate that club head speed. If he was a slower tempo guy with a short swing, he couldn't generate that power. He's, he's knocked on the door so many times, and he's been so close and just hasn't, you know, other than the win in Puerto Rico, really hasn't cracked that winner circle. Yeah. But but he's always in the mix, right? So what what yeah. is what prevents a guy like Tony Finau, who's always right there, just he's always in the top five, top ten on the leaderboard. What is What are some of the things maybe you're keying on or – or that he can, you know, just, it, it's such a fine line from winning and not winning, isn't it? Yeah, so two years ago, he went from 137th in putting to 65th, and that propelled him to the year he was 6th in the FedEx Cup, got to ninth in the world, made the Ryder Cup, had a breakout season. Putting. Putting, um, being, being this, really this kind year, of middle of the pack finished, in a way, or a little, yeah, a little better than uh -huh. middle of the pack, yeah. Yeah, and then this year... You know, he finished seventh in the FedEx Cup, which I'm proud of. Like, it's hard to back up a breakout season as far yeah. as, I mean, last year he did, he almost had, he had a chance to win the FedEx Cup without a win. That's how consistent he was. And obviously, you know, he he plays to win. He does. I mean, the, the of course. people make it sound like these guys make so much money, they're just playing <laughs> for top tens and they're not wanting to go for things. Well, they obviously haven't watched Tony play. He goes for everything. I mean, he's hitting driver off every tee. He's pretty... You know, he's, he's aggressive to almost to a fault at times. So I think to me, when you look at people that win tournaments, um, you always see them make putts, either par saves or birdie putts inside of 10, 12 feet on the back nine of a tournament. We need to do that still. China, he did everything that he needed to do to win. He lost to you know, Xander in a playoff. Yeah. Xander has that it factor. He's a special player. We all see that now. He just he made this putt on 17 after Tony had just hit a great bunker shot to gimme and, and then hits an amazing shot on 18. And Tony had a, had a three shot lead, I believe on the last round, he shot the fifth lowest score of the day and still loses. So in that case, he did everything he needed to do to win. But in other cases, I think that we just got to make another putt or two on the back nine inside of 12 feet that keeps the round or the momentum going. And you just see that there's a key up and down for guys 
or a putt inside 10, 12 feet that helps them win a golf tournament. And that's, that's bottom line what we got to do. We got to make more putts from inside 12 feet. In those, in those key times, exactly, right? Yeah. The, uh, yeah. He had some pretty good experience, uh, and you had to be pretty excited this, this last year. It looks like he played in, the, uh, in that final group with Tiger Woods at the Masters and got to see firsthand kind of what, you know, what winning a major was like. That had to be pretty impressive for him to watch. And for you, yeah, to, for you to be, you know, to be right there as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I told him after. I mean, he made one mistake on twelve. Like, you know, obviously he wasn't the only one that the wind fooled a little bit of the players, right? Where you know you saw Francisco, he's a machine. He came up twelve yards short or so. I mean, Tony hit it in, and other guys hit it in. Um, he's a fader of the ball, and so it, on twelve, the pin's always on that back right. Mm-hmm. It fits the eye for a fade, but it actually isn't a fade shot because the more you fade it, the longer the cover gets. And so in hindsight, you know, you look at Tiger, how he played away from the pin. He didn't aim way left and hit a cut to the middle of the green. He actually aimed in between the pin and the middle of the green and hooked it back to the middle of the green. So if anything, it would go too far. So other than that, Tony was right there. One cool thing is, is that, you know, we've been together six years and you know, even though he hasn't won, like I can tell how he has felt over the last two years. He's just very comfortable. Like when he had a chance to win um, at uh, Shinnecock, you know, he's in the final group tied for the lead. Yeah. He was as calm as he was when he was in the final group of the Masters. Like he was ready to go. He could, he was not thinking about, oh, I'm, I'm going to use this to my experience. I'm going to get to play Tiger Woods and watch and learn. He, you could tell in the warm-ups that he was very confident that he was going to win the tournament, and that's what I loved. Is like he he felt like it was his time. It didn't work out, but he was ready to go. So he's progressed a lot. He's gotten a lot more comfortable and a lot more confident. And he's he's been in. He's had eight top tens in his last twelve or so uh, majors. I mean, he's had a great run, a lot of top fives. So in the Ryder Cup, so he is just getting more comfortable in those situations because comfort is a big part of it, right? Absolutely. Amazing consistency. You're right. You have to be, you've got to be comfortable to play that well and that consistent. And, uh, and, and before we get, uh, we bring your son Preston in uh, to, to share some of his stories about winning this year's U.S. Junior Amateur at Inverness, I just want to ask you real quick about some of the prep. I know you, you work with some other tour pros, Wyndham Clark, uh, among others, when you're at a tour event with these pros like Wyndham or Tony or, or, you know, even your son Preston, what sort of things do you work on at the tournament site, you know, day before the event, you go around uh, the practice rounds with them. Uh, talk up to a little, uh, our listeners a little about what you do. Well, I think the, the longer you work with somebody, the more dialogue you have as far as being able to make adjustments during a week too. Right. So, you know, with Tony, I've been with him six years. I'm, if something is a little off, he's, he's actually will be like, Hey, what do you think? You know, and, and make, make a little bit of a tweak even on Wednesday or a lot of times I stay during the tournament rounds cause they like that to where you can make adjustments in between the rounds. So um, I think the, the first few days, you know, Tony knows most all these courses now, so it's not a matter of getting to know the courses. You know, his caddy's been with him for five years. They know what to do. It's more of just getting on site and just, you know, getting comfortable with the maybe the short game shots that that course has or the grasses. But 
it's more just keeping things in check. And then the off weeks are the one, the weeks that you get a little bit more aggressive with technique. But if, if a player isn't playing good, then trust me, they're willing to try something too, even if it's the day before in a warm up. So these guys are pretty gutsy with wanting to change a few things if they're not playing good. So yeah, you gotta, gotta mix it up sometimes. Uh, speaking about mixing it up, let's, let's bring your son Preston into the uh, silver club podcast here for a moment. I think he's done finishing his, uh, his homework for now, or maybe he's rolling yeah. a, few, a few putts on the uh, family putting green in the backyard, maybe. <laughs> he's probably doing both. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. All right. Young Preston Summerhays, not playing like a young man this year. Uh, that win of the U.S. Junior this year at Inverness, 2-1 and one victory televised live on FS1. What was it like to go through that whole week there? And you had the TV cameras. You know everybody's watching you come through with some monster putts on the back nine to close the deal there. What t- Talk us through a little about how you felt going into that event. Uh, I felt great going into the to the event. Uh, the week before, I won the Utah State Am, uh, another match play event, which is the exact same format. So I, I felt really good. Back-to-back back Utah State Am, yeah. if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I felt really good kind of playing that format before. And going into the week, I knew it was going to be really hot. So I just tried to stay super rested and uh, drink lots of water and keep my energy up through the week. Play two rounds of stroke play, six rounds of match play. Yeah, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a grueling test to capture a USGA national championship like that. The win has propelled you to 81st in the world amateur golf rankings, uh, which is phenomenal. And ha- how old are you? Uh, 17. 17. All right. So maybe you're yeah. just, just driving a car. and just yeah. Start, oh, yeah. I'm sure, you're, I'm sure your dad is really happy about that. <laughs> Bump that insurance <laughs> yeah, <he> up. <laughs> but, uh, but maybe that'll help you get to the golf course and even work on your game even, uh, even for longer hours. But uh, so, so but that win at Inverness... It led you to play in the U.S. Amateur this year at Pinehurst, which, you know, great experience uh, for you. I know you missed the cut there, but you got a bigger fish to fry in June up in New York. Talk about the uh, 2020 U.S. Open at Wingfoot. How psyched are you for that? I'm so excited. I think think that the USGA has done a great job with allowing the U.S. US junior winner to get a spot into a into the U.S. Open, uh, I've had I've had it for a goal now for the last couple of years to have or to play in a PGA Tour event before I graduate high school. So to play in a major, it's it's really exciting to me. <laughs> and and uh, have you played Wingfoot? And what do you think yes. of it? Yes, I have played Wingfoot. We maybe went out for a practice round about a month ago. Uh, it's a great golf course. Uh, it's, it's not as tricky as I thought it would be. It's just very difficult. You have, you have to hit the shot, but it's not, it's not super tricky. It's, it's a lot of dogleg lefts, dogleg rights. You have to be able to work the ball both ways. You have to be able to hit it high, land it soft. And I think, I think you have, your short game has to be on to, to get some great up and downs out of those roughs and uh, make some good putts. Yeah, it's it's a it's a 
one of the greatest courses out there, the fairway sweep right or sweep left. Yeah. It's a exactly. spectacular facility. Yeah, you're uh, you're, you're going to be like a kid uh, kid before Christmas is going to be, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, every day between now and, and next mid-June. Uh, so that's going to be spectacular. And I'm sure you'll get a lot of notoriety leading up to that event. And But uh, talk about, you know, for, for you know, all the, the, any juniors that are listening to our podcast or parents of juniors that are listening to our pod, what a podcast, what is a day in the life of Preston Summerhays look like? Obviously, you work on your game, I'm sure, quite a bit. How do you balance, you know, the school and the practice and then the going to travel to all these tournaments as well? Yeah, so uh, just kind of a normal day. Uh, so I do online school to to help with traveling. It makes my schedule a lot easier, a yeah. lot more flexible. Okay. So I usually, in the mornings, I work out from about, nine nine to ten ten thirty uh get home uh probably head out to the course around 11 11 30 and then practice until dark uh and get home and get my homework done wow what, what's your favorite subject in school uh golf? let's see golf no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh i i like math that's uh, yeah i like math a lot yeah, have you learned the Pythagorean theorem yet? Hey, yes, many times. There we go. You need that in golf. Uh huh. <laughs> but you, I mean, I, I, I know you don't miss too many fairways. Although maybe in that U.S. Junior final, yeah. you did a couple, and you hit a. <laughs> I remember you hitting that miraculous shot on that on the 35th hole that day. And, uh, you know what? What you're obviously a great putter. I, I guess. I guess you know talking talking to to your father here a second ago. You know, with the the long lineage of Summer Hayes great players in your family do you think a, a great putter is born or is a great putter made because man you are you can roll your rock <laughs> thanks uh i i think we're, whatever family you come from uh a great putter is definitely made uh i know not a lot of people have seen it but i've i've rolled thousands of pots i've practiced i've practiced thousands of hours on my putting uh, so I think it's just kind of putting in that work, uh, and just making a lot of putts and having, having a lot of confidence that you can make those putts is, is kind of a, kind of the signs of a, of a great putter. Got to put in the reps and Hey, sometimes you get on those green, certain greens and certain courses that you just see all the breaks perfectly. Don't you? <laughs> yeah. What, what, I mean, what is it like though? I mean, uh, uh, for for our listeners who who maybe haven't had a putt on you know on national television to to win a championship, I know you made a uh, about an eight or ten footer on that on that last hole to capture the title. What what goes through your mind when you're standing when you're getting ready to hit that putt and you're standing over that putt? What what sort of things pop into your mind? Where is your focus mainly at that point? Uh, I think one of the cool things about putting is that is that every putt is kind of the same. You go you go through the same ex exact routine, whether it would be just a, a ten footer, just to win a match with your buddies, or or to win a championship. So I go through my same routine every single time, and I I just try to replicate a, just a good stroke and good speed and a. It's just it's just not that different. 
Yeah, so you're just, uh, you're focused more, would you say you just focus more on the process then, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Simple as that. Easy. <laughs> and you just get yeah. up there and you, you, you just keep holding putts. That's, that's awesome stuff. Now, uh, before I let you go, I've got to, I've got to ask you and, and boy, you can even chip in here. You know, how do you, how do you feel being coached by your father? I mean, I know kids don't listen to their parents at all. And <laughs> what, what sort of things has your dad taught you that, that maybe what's, what's one great lesson you had on the golf course with him? Uh, from a very young age, he's always taught me to just go out there and play, uh, not put a lot of pressure on myself. Uh, I know I've put in the work and if I go out there and play, I can, I can handle the results. So if, so just kind of go out there relaxed and play free. I think that's one of the biggest lessons he's taught me. Yeah. He mentioned that, that, you know, he, he definitely stresses getting on the golf course, uh, as much or more than, than beating balls in the practice tee, huh? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, on-course play is, is the closest variation to tournament, to tournament play. So being out on the course as much as you can is the closest thing you're going to get to a tournament, and I think that's really important to do. Okay, so I remember the exact age I was when I beat my father. How old were you when you, <laughs> when you beat yours? Uh, I think I was... I think I was 15. Yeah, 15. I'm so glad he didn't say 14. 15 sounds <laughs> terrible too, Steve. And he, I used to play a lot more with him, but now that he, he beats up on me pretty good, I don't. I just like to watch him play, but it's more of a cop-out. I just don't want to get my, my butt beat in every time I go play. So at 15, you know, when he was 15, he shot 60 or 65, 60 in the U.S. Amateur qualifying to go to Pebble Beach. And I kind of knew where my place was in the family. I, I fell down to second in the rankings real fast in our family. So it's been fun to see. But when you're talking about things that maybe you, you he's learned from me or what I stress to is um, to get over bad shots immediately. You look at how he won um, two of his Utah State amateurs. He had a, a spot in the championship match, both matches of his Utah State amateurs where he kind of botched a couple holes in a row where it looked like, wow, like maybe he's folding. But, you know, at a young age, that was something that I felt like if I could do two things, help him get over bad shots immediately and then to just play pressure free, like just know that I'm not going to be over critiquing the rounds or don't just when I watch kids play, when you say how does it still work with the father and son, because right. it's hard as a kid to take from a dad and it's hard as a parent to coach your kid. But yes. I think, I think I kind of feel like if he still wants me to watch him play and he doesn't get nervous to have me watch him play and he wants me there, then he doesn't feel pressure to perform. And I think if parents can do one thing is that literally you, you could see his, my, him, his and my daughter's phone. I text them before every big tournament round or every tournament round and just, stress the same stuff. Hey, I'm proud of you. It doesn't matter what you shoot. You've been working hard. Don't add any more pressure on you. Just go play. We say just go play all the time. Just go yeah. play. Play free. And, and in that U.S. Junior Championship match, he kind of made a mess out of a couple different holes. You know, 13, he kept it in the bunker and made a sloppy bogey on a par five. And then he hit a really bad lag put on 15. But you can tell he just gets over it and moves on and acts like nothing happened. And then on 16, 
as a dad and a coach, that's that's the most proud. I mean, people will think about number 17 for, uh, you know, the Inverness Club, you know, it was cool. They wanted his wedge. We gave him his wedge. He hit that shot. And that will be a pretty famous shot in U.S. junior history. But yeah. me, as a coach and a dad, it was number 16. He had a perfect drive in the fairway after making a great save on 15. Bo Jin hits it to 30 feet. And Preston kind of has control of the match. And he just miss clubs, miss, misreads the wind a little bit and goes long and then chips it short and chips it to 25 feet. He's literally putting for five and Bo Jin's putting for three from only a difference of five feet. And you can see his face. He doesn't think it's over. And when Bo hit his putt to, you know, six feet, seven feet, and when Preston made his putt, you could just see he knew that it was going to be tough for Bo to make that putt. So I love that he's been able to learn. And it wasn't easy. He used to be really hard on himself and get down just like yeah. all of us can, and junior golfers especially. But now he, he, he gets over bad shots quick, and he does play really free, which are those those are two huge things for, for our family and for his golf for sure. Well, Preston, it sounds like you certainly have a sense for the moment. And your, your sister, Grace, is uh... – is quickly coming behind maybe Boyd, you're going to be number three in the, uh, in the family golfing ranking. I, here soon. I, I, from what I, I was see, hoping you didn't mention that when I said two, <laughs> I was like, that was at the time two years ago and Preston beat me. I was two, but you're right. I'm almost third now. So she's, she's got a, uh, I've watched a lot of swings on Instagram and what a, what a golf swing she has as well. And, uh, you know, the two glove nature and, uh, the whole thing, she's just, uh, She's out there to, to crush her opponents. I mean, she I, she made it to the finals of the Utah State Women's Amateur this year, correct? Yeah, she did. She did well and lost on the last hole and wow. made the men's men's state amateur qualified Preston's caddy for quite a bit. He knows her game really good. They train together almost every day. So he helped her uh, caddy at the men's state amateur. And then at the week after he won the U.S. Junior, he actually caddied for her in her U.S. Junior where she got to the round of 16 before she lost to the winner. Well, that's well, that's something. Well, look, you have a, a tremendous amount to be proud of and, and you know, the, the young men and women you're raising. And, you know, Preston, best of luck to you at uh, in all of your upcoming events, including that U.S. Open at, at uh, famed Wingfoot. We'll all be watching that. And I'm sure you have a lot of great tournaments lined up in preparation for that this year. Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Where can where can we find you, Boyd? I know you. You you not only coach professional guys on the tour and your your great players and your children. Uh, if the general public out there wanted to take a lesson from Boyd Summerhays, how can they do it? Yeah, my website's simple, uh, summerhaysgolf.com. So there, you can Google my name, and that website will pop up. Or my my social media. A lot of people follow what my kids and tour players are doing. Just summer Boyd Summerhays Golf. But um, yeah, that's about the easiest way to get a hold of me. Great. Well, we're all interconnected in this world of social media, and you know, for ha to have you on our Silver Club podcast today, it's just uh, it means an awful lot to me. And uh, you know, we'll we'll keep watching the Summer Hayes family grow and grow and become uh, all major champions real soon. Hey, I appreciate the support. It's so great to chat with you. Um, it's been fun over the last couple of years, like I said, to reconnect a little bit. And congrats on your success. And uh, Look forward to talking to you again sometime. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see you real soon, boy. Thanks so much. Good luck, guys. Thanks, Steve.